everyone. Welcome to the Empire Files podcast. This is Abby Martin. This is a special patron-only podcast to thank you all for supporting our work and for making our videos and most of our podcasts available to all. You may have seen the interview I did recently with director Oliver Stone, where I spoke to him about his new documentary film, JFK Revisited, Through the Looking Glass. This documentary came out 30 years after his cinematic feature, JFK, and is based on the contradictory facts that emerged from the declassified files of the 1992 JFK Records Act. Oliver takes us on a riveting journey through that era, and I highly recommend everyone watch the interview on the Empire Files, as well as Oliver's JFK films. That episode was a special joint production with my friend Aaron Good for his JFK podcast series called Destiny Betrayed. Aaron Good is one of the many compelling researchers featured in Oliver's four-hour version of the film. He's an expert in deep politics, author of the new book called American Exception, Empire and the Deep State, for which I did the artwork. And his podcast is a must-listen for anyone interested in JFK and the machinations of Empire. All of the links for Aaron's work will be available in the show notes below. Recently, I got a chance to speak to Aaron at length for a follow-up piece to accompany Oliver's interview. We go much more in-depth about the circumstances surrounding the assassination, the Vietnam War, the unbelievably evil history of CIA operations, and how this dark chapter in American history profoundly shaped the world we know today. You know, the CIA or potentially FBI or other national security state components were also involved in taking out leaders like MLK, who at the time, even though they herald him today and every MLK day, you see this whitewashing campaign from these very same agencies that were perhaps involved in the assassination. But at the time, as we know, they considered him the most dangerous, quote unquote, Negro in America, and they were wiretapping him. They were trying to ruin his life. Right. They were blackmailing him, telling him to kill himself. Um, he was uh, he was in, he and Robert Kennedy. I mean, this is in April of 1968. And then Kennedy, Robert Kennedy dies in June of 1968. So there were there was a massive uh, backlash against Vietnam and against the establishment. And there was a kind of revolutionary mood in the country. And with Robert Kennedy as the political figure who threatened to give, you know, political efficacy to these to these movements, and then you had um, you had Martin Luther King as this activist who was now taking on the cause of the Poor People's March, and he was speaking about the evil triplets of racism, imperialism, and economic exploitation, which is essentially capitalism. Then he's doing something much different. He is not just this friendly liberal person who could kind of be co-opted in a way because the establishment, even people like Dulles, they actually favored civil rights. Uh, and, and that's what part of why they were able to succeed when they had failed in the past is that Jim Crow was something that made the U.S. look bad to the third world and the U.S. wanted to have good relations with the third world to exploit it. The establishment was in favor of civil rights. They were not in favor of where MLK went next, which was looking at capitalism. He was saying things like, we got to ask who should own the oil? How is it right that somebody owns the oil and owns the earth, right? This is the this is the fundamental uh, element of capitalism that like that when you stop and think about it, like how ridiculous it is that people who own oil companies 
just become like uh, these emperors of our society, right? Because of because they own all these shares of Standard Oil or Goldman Sachs or whatever. And King, and King was attacking that the legitimacy of that. And this would made him very dangerous at that point. And he was relating it to the war in Vietnam and everything else. This was a really systemic critique. And Robert Kennedy was doing a version of that himself. He ran on a platform of peace, economic justice, and racial justice. So MLK wants this Poor People's March. He goes to Memphis before that to stand up for these sanitation workers and ends up getting killed supposedly by James Earl Ray. But he's another character who's – he escaped from prison. He doesn't seem to have any motive. He, he confessed to doing it because he was told he'd get the death penalty otherwise, but then he later said he didn't do it. Lots of, Ken, of MLK's family met with uh, James Earl Ray and came to the conclusion that he was innocent. Um, Jimmy Carter's ambassador to the United Nations, Andrew Young, is one of the people who believed that MLK was killed by the state. When the House Select Committee in the 70s reinvestigates it, they actually find also that James Earl Ray had un- assistance from unnamed Confederates, and they leave it at that. So again, in the King case, the last official investigation was that it was a conspiracy, but they they don't expand on it. So there's, it's another case of these you know assassinations that seem to come from the deep state or the establishment. It's very devastating to to think about what you're describing, which is, you know, not only this kind of whitewashing of his legacy to minimize his entire plight and and life to just civil rights when we know he was for economic justice, advocating the rights of poor people, planning this huge, large-scale occupation, like akin to Occupy Wall Street of Washington, D.C. I can't even fathom what that would have turned into, how profound that change could have been and the consciousness shift of integrating economic justice, economic rights, this kind of basic security for everyone in the country that intertwined, you know, Vietnam, our foreign policy abroad to economic justice. It's just it's such an incredible, profound thing that he was trying to do. And it's like, yeah, dude, that that was not tolerated straight up. Exactly. And I would compare it to the bonus army in the depression they went and camped out on in washington because that's where they planned to camp out and they were going to camp out in front of the capitol uh in the, the bonus army wanted their world war one bonuses and then hoover sends in uh i mean it's not yeah president hoover sends in douglas macarthur to kick them out and then they burn down their encampment and everything and it makes the president look really bad and it helps franklin roosevelt right and he has this new deal and eventually, one of the things Roosevelt advocates is, you know, an expanded uh, a declaration of rights, like an economic bill of rights for Americans that was similar to what MLK was asking for. So there were uh, there were progressive forces in the establishment that represented by Roosevelt and they lose and these other forces take over. Somebody like MLK emerges in the in the 50s and 60s to deal with civil rights, but then later for economic justice. And these other darker forces that have emerged will not allow that to happen. I, I think that for it's the ruling class in America has figured out that a certain amount of desperation and misery uh, and a stratified society is better for them, that it's easier for them to rule over 
a uh, divided country and that white supremacy, as we understand it, is not just like people with their, you know, microaggressions. It's that it's a de facto, it's a, it's a, it's a hierarchy, an economic hierarchy that is very beneficial to for the elites to have because it's uh, there's desperation uh, among a, a group of lower income whites and so on, and then there's the black underclass, what gets called the black underclass sometimes of like poor, uh, disadvantaged black people in America, and this fuels racism and it's a sort of divide and rule thing uh, uh, for the elites and. By wanting to look at poverty as a whole in the poor people's campaign, he wasn't. He wanted poor white people to join this. Mm-hmm. He wanted poor Latino people to join this. He wanted it to be everybody sticking up for the poor in America and demanding they were going to demand an end to the Vietnam War and that that money be spent on social programs to make America a just society. And his family believes that that was why he was killed. Yeah, I mean. Just that quote is just so profound. The largest purveyor of violence is my own government. And just tying together the three evils again, it's just like that that was unacceptable. And that's why we know very little about these two other huge aspects of Martin Luther King's legacy, Um, especially, you know, I think in one of his last speeches, it was called America's going to hell. It was like literally the title of his speech where he was like talking yep. about how like America was like the devil because of all the evil it was committing around the world. It's like, hmm, didn't learn that one in school. Um, when we hear about deep state operations and when we're covering things like the JFK assassination, you know, people may ask, well, who is really in charge here? Like, obviously, JFK knew that he had no real control over this apparatus, this this in- covert intelligence service that had been kind of operating on its own accord. But I mean, could you just chalk that up to Alan Dulles being just this kind of outlier that he just took it and ran with it. But then once he was gone, then it went back into the fold of the U.S. government. And, you know, how do you explain the functionality um, and the different facets of the deep state and how it all works together with your theory of the tripartite state? Right. Well, the the theory of the tripartite state evolved out of a a dual state scholarship. And the the first formulation of the idea of a dual state was from a German named, I think it was Hans Frankel was the guy. And he was a a, a person who immigrated to the United States and he from Nazi Germany. And he says that there's this prerogative state that emerged uh, in Germany and that it's basically like a dictatorship, that you still have your normal public state, like with your, your courts and your legal system and everything else. But you've got this like this super lawless, dictatorial prerogative state that's like a security state. It's a, this dual state that's emerged, and it's supposedly there to protect the other state, the normal state. The, they call it the normative state, right? Now, other people wrote about this in the 50s, even like um, Hans Morgenthau, who's a a scholar of realism and international relations. And he wrote that, you know, in every place where you have this dual state phenomenon emerge, it's like politics becomes securitized and it all becomes uh, the realm of the security services to have kind of a veto power over policy. So you have this national security state, right? And people wrote about, about this and tried to apply it to the U.S. case, right? But the U.S., because the U.S. is not a doesn't become a dictatorship outwardly like Nazi Germany, you have 
the the head of the state, the head, and then the head of the military and the head of the intelligence services under Kennedy was supposedly John Kennedy, right? He's the president. So they get rid of the the president, but then who really how do we even understand these forces? And if Alan Dulles is out of government, but yet he's able to marshal forces from inside and outside of the national security state, then you have to rethink how you're going to conceptualize the state. Is it just the national security state and the CIA, you know, or is it something else? And that's where the tripartite part comes in. You have the democratic state, which we learn about in school and which we are told really runs the country. But then, of course, you have to account for the Pentagon and the CIA and the NSA and their sort of powers of state secrecy and the fact that they sometimes kind of sort of break the law for national security and you don't get to know about that, right? So that would be a dual state idea. But what about if there's somebody like Alan Dulles who at the behest of people like that are also out of government, like the Rockefeller types or Dean Acheson, they decide that this president's got to go. Then they're sort of they're connected to people in the public state and in the national security state, but they represent something else, something deeper, deep political top-down power that can exercise a veto power over democracy. And so if you were really going to try to combat this, it would be like something like de Gaulle did, where after he is nearly assassinated, he takes the public state, which was him you know, and, and other French officials, they take control of the security services and they turn the security services against this deep state entity that has emerged and they root them out and they're able to sort of save the, the republic that way. In Kennedy's case, that's what Robert Kennedy had, to, had wanted to do if he ever got to the White House, but he wasn't able to. And so that case allows us some insight into the nature of the state. Additionally, after Watergate and this whole – all these scandals around Watergate, you have attempts to rein in the CIA. You have the Church Committee and Jimmy Carter puts in this guy, Stansfield Turner, who fires some of the worst operators in the CIA, right? So what does the CIA do? Well, CIA is run by this other person. But meanwhile, all these ex-spooks and people like Richard Helms, you know, who was a retired or he became an ambassador, and people like Adnan Khashoggi who are, are working with weapons dealers and oil people in, in Saudi Arabia, they create the Safari Club, right? Because the CIA can't operate. So basically, these same deep political entities organize this intelligence outfit with some of these same people so that they can go out and do you know evil shit around the world that the CIA would have been doing except for the fact that the public state tried to crack down on them. And then even the national security state, the CIA itself, tries to change these things. So these people form, form another outfit that is doing all of these things. And they get involved in sabotaging Jimmy Carter's presidency with that whole October surprise thing. But then Reagan takes over, right? And then basically these things are brought back into the fold. But it's something bigger than just the formal CIA or just the the presidency, that this is connected to some sort of deep political power that is connected to the height of American political economic elites. And this is what we have to reckon with. It's not a clean thing where I could show you a, a chart and say, here's the guy who's running the deep state. Mm -hmm. It's a set of institutions that are that are economic and intertwined with the uh, the government. 
but sort of outside and above. And it, it to really reform American democracy, I think that this imperial hyperpower we've accumulated needs to be diminished and there needs to be some kind of truth and reconciliation process and the deep state needs to be more or less vanquished as a as an entity it's not a living under this kind of disguised dictatorship with a democratic you know facade it has is has made the country very dysfunctional and we can't respond to crises of economic inequality or global warming or uh, the threat of nuclear annihilation. It's just, it's insane. And uh, a, a truly democratic, open and democratic system could start to respond to these things, but we can't under these circumstances. So the deep state kind of represents uh, a way to grasp theoretically with this, the regime that we live under. It's kind of horrifying when you assess it in that way, because it's not, it's not something that really can change without like a massive upheaval. And as the U.S. empire kind of continues to decay and rot, it's going to flail in very violent ways to try to hold on to this covert kind of dictatorship that you're talking about. And it is interesting to think of it like as this kind of machinery that operates on its own at this point. You know, it's kind of like, even if there was someone who got in like a Kennedy again, or or someone, you know, if there was some sort of shift of consciousness within the establishment, they can't even stop it at this point because it's so integrated and so intertwined that it it really is like a machine. We saw all of these presidents after Kennedy continue these horrific policies of destruction, the dirty wars in Latin America, the full-blown war across Asia, the the war on drugs so much destruction raining down on the world, hundreds of millions of people's lives torn apart. Then we saw 9-11 happen. Um, the CIA definitely got a, a chance to completely rebrand. It was painted as the good guys. Now they have this good role, right, to fight these terrorists who attacked us. And then, you know, fast forward 15 years, and then it's just this other propping up of the CIA under Trump with these intelligence agents just on panel after panel, basically revered by liberals, rehabilitated by liberals, sadly. The same people that I think would be smarter than that, that knew the true legacy of the CIA. And the CIA was pretty widely hated, I feel like, before 9-11. And then I feel like it just got a new chance to completely rebrand. And that's why, I mean, dare I say even woke rebranding now with these absurd ads that I feel like are like partly fucking psyops on us. So I guess... There's no partly. I mean, that's, yeah, I that's mean, it's, pretty much what they it's are. It's literally a psyop. Yeah, and people are like, oh my God, the CIA is woke now. It's like, no, I, no, this is all fucking, this is just mental games, bro. Like, I mean, just talk about this shift in perception of A, the CIA doesn't do this stuff anymore. It doesn't do regime change anymore. It's actually good. And I guess how do we approach this very heavy concept that you've just discussed? How do we direct this to a younger generation that the CIA is still a criminal organization. It's undermining the rights and sovereignty of countless people around the world in our names. And you mentioned the NED earlier, and I think that this is also like an important 
point to this is that it it has become smarter in the sense that it uses more transparent methods, National Endowment for Democracy, USAID, a lot of what they do today, even according to the former president of the NED, Alan Weinstein, who said, who said as such in 1991 that it, much of what these organizations do today across Latin America, across Asia and the Middle East, is what the CIA did covertly 25 years prior. So that almost is, you know, on one hand, it's like admitting that they've just taken on the role of these secretive regime change operations, but in a more transparent fashion where now they don't have to hide it anymore because it's under the auspices of like, we're funding opposition groups, we're, you know, supporting democratic efforts in these dystopian regimes. But on the other hand, it's almost absolving the CIA and being like, oh, yeah, like, again, lending to that narrative that, oh, yeah, that was just like back in the day, like the CIA is cool now. Yeah, the propaganda in pop culture is amazing. We, I do have an. There's one episode of the podcast where I talked to Matthew Alfred, who did a whole lot of work on the the Pentagon and uh, the CIA's role in influencing Hollywood. It, it's there's so much bullshit, like the uh, Jack Ryan thing, where they have a whole season or two on Venezuela. You know, yeah. and it's 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 ridiculous. <laughs> and the the I mean, it's all over the place really the black panther thing it was funny that the chadwick boseman who i admire he actually said at a in an interview he was like yeah you know killmonger's actually the good guy if you look at it <laughs> right <laughs> but in that movie because he's basically saying like look the, the guy who's really like against the the system and against the uh you know african people and the people of african descent being screwed over is uh, is the villain and the good guy, one of the good guys is Bilbo Baggins, that same actor, plays a CIA officer who's there to help the resource-rich African country. It's the most ridiculous thing you could imagine, but this is like the way that they smuggle this bullshit in to pop culture. Uh, I think that the it's very it's difficult to think about how to explain this to younger people. I was teaching high school for a long time. And my students got a very, you know, good education on on all of these things, and I have no idea how much of it sticks with, with them. <laughs> but it's like they—it is more of an interesting way to look at history. Like the standard history is really boring if you're going to watch that one uh, really dorky guy uh, from Indiana, uh, John Green, right? Yeah. And he's there, and he's and he—they they say things that are utter bullshit when it comes to once it gets into post World War Two, right? Everything that they say about it foreign policy is just bullshit and the kids really get a lot of that at most places but the real the real history is much more interesting but it does it can give you a sense of like okay i can't really these forces are too powerful to do much with and with but it's better if you really are in a situation where you live under a kind of despotic regime right, that you can't really influence very much if that's really the truth then you, you should know that you shouldn't say like oh It'll matter who we vote for when it doesn't matter just to like make people feel better. I think that they are losing a lot of legitimacy now. Um, and even they can still rally public opinion as you see the way that this whole Russia thing is playing out where it, it, people really have no idea why this war really happened. And it's just a way for people to like virtue signal about how they're like anti-war, you know, when like the deeper causes are like make the U.S. look much worse if you really understand it. Right. But what can you do to get people to realize this? I don't know that it's going to come from America where this change will happen. I think that if the international system changes, then the the basis for the U.S. empire to go along doing what it has done may change. And at that point, it's the, there may be elements of the establishment 
who will want to move in a more potentially progressive direction and allow for some democracy and openness in order to reorient the U.S. in a way that's going to be more functional once the dream of unipolarity in perpetuity is no longer tenable, then perhaps there will be a change that way. And so people should want to understand that the way things really work and try to spread the word about it, but not but do it because it's it's the right thing to do and because you'd rather not be an idiot, not because there's some easy path to uh, to victory here for the people who would want to have radical change under this system. Right. And unfortunately, because of this deep-seated distrust in our institutions, because we've been lied to about every single thing in terms of our foreign policy and maintenance of the U.S. empire, it's led us to this profound disbelief whenever they do get something right, like preempting this invasion of Ukraine with months and months and months of this advertising campaign announcing that Putin was going to do this. I mean, it really is fascinating to see this play out and the dysfunctionality the complete and utter dysfunction of our society where we can't even agree on a level playing field of what reality is anymore. And it just seems like the disassociation, it's like the the severing upon itself of reality that it is becoming increasingly hard to have these conversations to figure out how, how can we move forward. And it is as the unipolarity of the U.S. continues to wane, that is also scary because you know, it, multi a multipolar role doesn't necessarily mean a peaceful one. Um, so we're in we're in very dark times ahead. And now, you know, with this Ukraine situation, it could erupt into a hot war at any second, depending on how much the U.S. decides to escalate this, Aaron. Well, I would say that these are definitely dark times, but that we should not despair. If nuclear Armageddon is going to come and that's not impossible, then uh, I almost hope that I just get kind of, you know, incinerated right away because the <laughs> world that we get after that isn't going to be worth living in. But uh Putting in in the bigger picture of of world history, um, whatever good things there are about America, and I do think that at one point in time, there were ways that America was actually exceptional in terms of like principles of free speech and free association and um, the – uh, the the right of people to have certain individual liberties. Of course, it was always hypocritical and predicated on slave labor. I know all of that. But there was a time where the U.S. actually stood out in the world in that way. And so those those whatever good things there were about America that we would want to hold on to, we have to recognize that the empire has come to overshadow everything else. And that empire as a, as a human uh, pursuit is always lawless and violent and exploitative. And the, for the U.S., we're unique from other empires, mainly in the sheer amount of economic power and military power and cultural power that we've accumulated and in the fact that the U.S. denies that it's an empire. So this is a unique situation, and the fact that we could end all life is also unique. But living under despotism and empires is has been pretty much the norm for most of human history. We just are divorced from that because of our American bubble that we live in. So we've got to accept some of these things and bear witness to the evil that is done, but uh, you know, not, not lose our minds over it. Still enjoy the human connections that we have with other people, and uh, hope that uh, you know that hope that it is true that what Martin Luther King said, uh, 
comes to pass that the moral arc of the universe is long, but that it bends toward justice. 